Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Today's topic, how to stay out of probate court in the context of divorce and family law. Our guest, attorney John Shea, a partner at Myrick O'Connell, and chair of the firm's family law and divorce group. John focuses his practice on all aspects of family law, including divorce, custody, support, removal, modification, and contempt actions. John Shea, thanks so much for joining us today on On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Thank you, Howard, for having me. Sure, our pleasure. Now, in thinking about our topic, staying out of probate court, prenuptial agreements come to mind. So my first question would be, for those who may not be sure, they hear it a lot in the news, but they're not sure exactly what these are. What is a prenuptial agreement? A prenuptial agreement is an agreement between two parties who are anticipated getting married. They're sometimes called premarital agreements, prenuptial or antenuptial agreements that can govern if in the event that the marriage is terminated by death or by a divorce, how certain things like property division happen at that time. Gotcha. So what is the standard in terms of enforcement of these? An enforcement issue always comes up in a prenuptial as the marriage is breaking down. So the courts, in determining whether or not something is a, an agreement is enforceable, they look to see, is it in writing? And that's actually a requirement that's by statute. Was it fair and reasonable at the time that it was entered? Did both parties fully disclose all their income, assets, and liabilities? So it's not that someone has to request information, but it's an obligation to disclose on each party. And then the court looks to, at the time that someone's seeking uh, that it be enforced, uh, is it fair and reasonable at that time? Sometimes that's called the look-back provision. And the standard there is, if the court were to uphold the agreement, would it be unconscionable? And if the answer to that question is yes, then the agreement will not be enforced. And then the agreement uh, also requires that the parties actually get married because it's a contract in anticipation of the marriage. So I, I said it, it has to be in writing. That's by statute. Fair and reasonable at the time it's entered. What does that mean? Often as people are entering into an agreement like this, they have different financial circumstances, lifestyles, health, whatever the circumstances are. So if, if you have a couple that are going to get married and let's say the wife is a successful executive and has accumulated a certain amount of wealth and the soon-to-be husband is um, not as advanced in his or her career and may not have acquired wealth. In the scenario I've just described, if the agreement was the, the wife were to retain all of her property and the husband would retain all of his, I think most people would agree if they come to marriage and one's got assets and one doesn't, that it's fair that they they keep what's in their corner. The full disclosure piece means that each party needs to as, disclose income, assets, and liabilities. And it is not like in litigation where you have the right to ask questions, but rather there's an affirmative duty to attach an exhibit to the agreement that lists out what your income is, what your assets are, and your liabilities. And it's really more assets, but it's it's safer to list all three. Many practitioners in this day and age use either a spreadsheet or they sometimes use a financial statement used by the probate court in the context of divorce um, litigation, because that will 
by filling that form out, it'll require you to go through all of your assets and describe them. Um, I, I indicated an, a minute ago that it's going to be fair and reasonable at the time someone's seeking to enforce it and that it wouldn't be unconscionable. And the reason for that is um, while that agreement might have been fair five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever the time frame is, um, when it's seeking to be enforced, one side might have had suffered health issues during the marriage that weren't uh, anticipated or might have not have enough property or funds or, or employment to support herself or himself. And so the, if that person is going to be, some used to say, a ward of the state, the court is likely to find that it's not conscionable to enforce it at that time. There are also, and I don't want to deviate from this a little bit, sometimes when it, the part a party is seeking enforcement, we often hear the adage, you might have to give something away that was covered in that agreement just to get this divorce done. So with some practicality, that sometimes happens. So the other thing that needs to happen, a part of the standard is, there needs to be a waiver within the document of um, a person's right to have a court make determination as to division of assets and property division under, and potentially alimony under the statute, which is chapter 208, section 34, and sections 48 through 55. So that's basically the standard. Again, it needs to contain the waiver of rights to a judicial uh, division of assets because that's what the statute calls for in Massachusetts. People enter these agreements in order to stay out of court in the future should the marriage not be successful into eternity or to death. It, it, because people have the right to contract and because they have the right to waive the what the statutes provide, which is a judge reviewing things, they need to be reviewed at the time of the divorce. Interesting. Now, the big question is, who uses prenuptial agreements generally and why? There are many permutations. Very often, I, f I find people in a second marriage that may already have children, they want to preserve whatever assets they've already thought about should go to their children. They don't want them to, to go somewhere else. Um, I mentioned earlier that's often if people have a different level of income or different um, amounts of assets at the time uh, that they're entering a marriage, someone may want to protect his or her assets, whatever they've generated to that point. I also see when people are disparate in age, if you've got someone very young versus someone who's older, as my experience has been, the older person typically, again, wants to preserve whatever plan they may have formulated or may have been thinking about um, to keep those earlier assets separate. Another category is when you have young people marrying, and it doesn't have to be young, but I, I see this with some frequency. If you've got a, a young couple getting married and one of them comes from a family of substantial worth, maybe that person's parents have already done some estate planning or they're in the process of it. They don't. They want to make sure that those funds stay within their family. I mean, so that if their child were to get married and then have a divorce, they don't want to see the former son or daughter-in-law reap the benefit of their hard work. That also applies to people who may have inherited assets already. And so they've got a substantial assets and they, well, they may not have earned them in the true sense of it by being in, inherited family or otherwise, they want to keep that separate. There are also some um, who just want certainty. I want to make sure that whatever it is, whether it's a business or business interests, certain types of investments, 
certain types of property. I want to make sure if this thing fails that I come away with whatever it, that item is. I've had some clients who have come and they're not quite sure that this is going to last very long. And so they want to take the opportunity to make sure, because they're already doubting, whether that's because the person they're mar- marrying has already demonstrated they have different philosophies on income and on spending. And there's a term spendthrift that applies to folks that spend you know, without worry. If they see that their soon-to-be spouse is a spendthrift and you know they, they just can't hold on to a dollar, it's got to be spent, that may cause them to want to enter some an agreement like this so they'll have some control. And then I've had a smattering of cases where a couple's getting married and one of the person to this potential marriage recognizes in the other, not the spendthrift issue, but perhaps there's a gambling issue or perhaps there's an alcohol or other substance issue or or behavioral health issue. So there, it runs the gamut as to who. There are just many different, and I hate to put these folks all in categories because no person should be in a category, but they're all different types of scenarios in people's lives that might lead them to think that entering a prenuptial agreement or premarital agreement or anti-nuptial agreement is better for them and perhaps better for the marriage as well. Hmm. You've given us a lot to think about there. What are downsides to a prenuptial agreement? There aren't a lot of downsides. One downside, I guess, would be this. You can't guarantee that it's going to be enforced because of that look-back provision. It certainly puts a cloud on the wedding day. For example, I represented a client a number of years ago. Uh, The wedding was a Saturday at 4.30, and we were still negotiating the prenuptial agreement at 3.30. Oh, my goodness. So you can imagine that that couple didn't get to, I'll call it the altar for lack of a better term, get to the altar with big smiles and happiness. There was already a little bit of stuff. So it can create issues within a relationship. It makes the relationship seem more businesslike. And I've heard that from clients who've been married for a period of time, and then someone seeking to enforce the prenuptial agreement. And they're saying, yeah, she or he had this planned all along. And it can make people bitter, if that's a, that makes sense to you. Oh, it, it does. What would be then the, the benefits? The benefits give you some clarity. You know at least what you've negotiated for purposes of division of assets and alimony. Those are the two major issues that I see. You, you know that you have someone's signature on a document, and hopefully this self-serving language in the document that everyone has read the agreement word for word, line for line, understands it. And that will give you some ability to, to plan. And also, it can, believe it or not, preserve a marriage because if you've signed a prenuptial agreement, and if we go back to that example of you may not have been the person with a lot of assets and the person you're marrying are, but you know that, you know, the longer I stick it out, maybe I'll get more of the assets, then it can actually have the benefit uh, of preserving a marriage for a longer period of time. I guess it could also have the benefit of preserving a marriage, maybe not that happily, if that person were to conclude, if I file for divorce, then I'm only going to come away with X. Why don't I stay where I am and enjoy the benefits of what my current spouse has generated thus far? That's right. Yeah. What are the practical steps or the mechanics of drafting and executing a prenuptial agreement, John? So first, it needs to be in writing, as I've mentioned. Each person should have their own attorney. One attorney cannot represent two people that are entering into a prenuptial agreement. It's a clear conflict 
of interest. You need to attach the exhibit uh, listing the income assets and liabilities, whether that's in spreadsheet form or just you know a list of assets and imbalances. Um, sometimes, as I mentioned, people use the financial statements used by the probate court in the divorce context. People will attach the Excel spreadsheet, whatever makes it clear. It should be my practices as it comes to businesses or, well, let's start with real estate. With real estate, I usually get an appraisal so that everyone knows what the actual value is or appraised value is. Um, and that way in the future, you know, you're not subject to a claim, well, that was just a gross estimate or they used Zillow or some other mechanism rather than a full appraisal. I think that makes sense. If there's a business, sometimes we do evaluation, generally not. If there are collectibles, and the reason I say generally not is a business valuation will cost beginning, you know, costs around $10,000. Um, and if it's a sizable business, if there's any dispute, it, it can cost a lot more. If there are collectibles, it's relatively easy to get an appraisal for that. Another practical step from my perspective is get it signed long before the marriage. Because the closer you get to the marriage, if it's kind of sprung on someone, if you will, at the last minute, and then the marriage breaks down, the, that party that was signing at the last minute could raise the argument that the agreement was reached as a result of fraud or coercion. Imagine this, you know, you invited 200 people to your wedding, and they're all getting ready to gather at either a house of worship, a park, hotel, wherever, and then have a reception, and it's... It's a week before, and all the invitations are in, all the advance payments made, the flower the arrangements are all that, and your fiancé says, oh, by the way, I need to, you to sign this agreement. That opens that agreement up in the future if the marriage terminates as a result of divorce as to that claim for coercion or fraud. It's really important to sign them as early as you can. It also makes sense to have that discussion early on. You can do what I call a friendly prenuptial agreement. There are certain attorneys in our in our geographical area that I know do these regularly. And if I'm representing one party and they ask me, well, who do you think you know my spouse should go to? I can give them three or four names. And so long as the terms are relatively straightforward, you might be able to do a, again, what I call a friendly prenuptial agreement without a lot of drama and angst by having two attorneys that know each other and have a level of trust doing the document. Another part of doing it early is if you're the person that wants the prenuptial agreement, you're going to want it enforced in the future. It's very telling to a judge. If the judge can see that there were drafts went back and forth between the two attorneys and that there were changes made, because then it's clear that each party was given legal advice of their own choosing. Each party had an opportunity to put his or her or her or her or his or his thumbprint on the document and make changes. And it shows that there was an intent to actually reach that agreement. So those are the, a quick summary of what I would describe as, I guess you said, practical steps in mechanics. That's very helpful, John. The follow-up questions that I would have are, are there issues that can be governed by a prenuptial agreement and also issues that specifically cannot be covered by the agreement? So typically, the prenuptial agreement go- governs the division of assets and perhaps alimony in the future. So in Massachusetts, we have a statute, Chapter 208, Section 34, that spells out all the factors governing how a judge is supposed to evaluate the division of assets. You can do that without having the judge 
go down that path. And you can have an agreement. And so long as you had it done timely, you had two attorneys, it was fair and reasonable then, it's fair and reasonable now, then you might be able to, that might be enforceable. You can also do some things that can be enforceable. I see this with some frequency. Usually what people like to do is they identify what we typically call separate property. So whatever you come into the marriage with is separate property. And people usually want that separate property to remain theirs. You can also plan for what if that separate property becomes something else. So let's say um, one party has a home and you can make a provision that says she or he will always retain that home or the value of that home. Or if that home is sold and the funds go to purchase another home or a boat or whatever, that those assets um, will retain that person. Sometimes we see this, we will have percentages of division of assets and maybe even just categories of assets. So you might have separate assets, you might have joint assets, and, and it might be, and this goes back to the, maybe the couple where someone's not sure this is going to last terribly long. I, I've seen often that if the marriage ends by divorce or death within five years, is a certain percentage of liquid assets gets paid out to their surviving spouse. And then maybe a higher percentage if the marriage is more than five, but less than 10 years, or more than 10, but less than 15. You can you know, think of any schedule you'd like if you want, but generally that's what it covers. Often people do at the very outset because they may have disparate levels of income of assets when they get married. They may say, okay, what's mine is mine. That's separate property now forever. Whatever that metamorphoses into, that will remain mine. But if we decide to buy something jointly, that will always be joint, and we, we're going to agree at the outset, it's 50-50. So you, we see this with vacation homes and that type of thing frequently, and people are deciding up front, look, if we decide to make something a joint asset, that's going to be 50-50. It's not going to be subject to the statutory factors on that a judge has is, is limited to coming to how he's going to divide that asset. You can make that decision up front. You could do it, you know, not only with those assets I've described, but certainly any stock accounts, mutual funds, or any investment type accounts. The issues that can't be governed by a prenuptial and antenuptial premarital agreement are things involving children. You can't decide custody, parenting schedule, child support, college, how college expenses are going to be made, how a child's going to be brought up um, religiously, really any child-related issues, and you can't waive an interest in an ERISA-qualified pension. The the ERISA-qualified pension piece is a federal statute, um, and that goes to protection from creditors and others from ERISA-qualified pensions or even other investments. The issues regarding children are tied into that notion that in making decisions around child issues, the court must always be governed by what's in the best interest of the child or children. And the court is not going to defer to the parties uh, of a prenuptial agreement for any children then born or unborn. The reality is you can't make those decisions in a prenuptial agreement. You certainly can't try to make them and try to force them to be enforceable at the time that the marriage breaks down. But again, I kind of look at this as this is one way you can kind of avoid the whole piece of litigation between the two parties if uh, the marriage breaks down at some point in the future. And then, John, because we, we just have been talking about prenuptial agreements, 
Then there's the postnuptial agreement. Now, what are they right. used for, and uh, and generally, who uses those? Postnuptial agreements is a relatively new concept for the, for Massachusetts. The first case that came down um, saying that they are enforceable came actually the Worcester Probate Court in 2010, and it was upheld by the Supreme Judicial Court July 16. So a postnuptial is a marital agreement, often called the marital agreement. In essence, in that case, the court recognized that married folks can contract with each other. So the case name doesn't mean anything to most people, but Anson versus Craven Anson was the first case in Massachusetts where the Supreme Judicial Court said it's not contrary to public policy for people to enter into a postnuptial. Now, that's an agreement, post meaning after, after you've been married. So the standards, factors that the court looks to are, uh, did each party have the opportunity for separate legal counsel of that person's own choosing? So similar to a prenuptial, you have to have two lawyers. Was there fraud or coercion? Meaning, was there uh, an intentional misrepresentation by one party with knowledge of the misrepresentation or the, the false statement made with the purpose of inducing them to enter the agreement and that other person suffers some type of negative consequence as a result. The next is, were the assets fully disclosed by both parties before the agreement was signed? You can't have this, well, we've been married for 20 years. We each know each other's business. uh, Therefore, I'm not going to disclose. There's still that affirmative duty to disclose. And did each knowingly, each party knowingly waive the right to judicial equitable division of assets and marital rights, meaning alimony at the time that they signed the agreement. There's got to be strong language about people understanding their rights, understanding that they're giving up their rights in the context of that postnuptial agreement. And then again, are the terms fair and reasonable when signed? And are they fair and reasonable at the time that someone's seeking enforcement? So you say, when are these used? You ask that. Um, In my experience, they're most often used after the marriage has suffered some difficulty or trouble. And sometimes a party will want their spouse to enter an agreement so that they're certain the marriage will continue. So essentially, we'll agree to enter this agreement and we will agree to the terms, but the basic premise is that we're entering this agreement so that our marriage will preserve and it will thrive. Usually there's language within these agreements that the parties have agreed to recommit to the marriage, maybe after a rocky period, and they do that. Maybe there was a period of separation. And again, the the goal here is ideally to preserve the marriage. Then as the agreement signed freely and voluntarily. Again, I can't state this enough. You really should state in the agreement that each party is aware of what they're entitled to, what the process is, maybe even what the factors are under uh, Chapter 28, Section 34, which is that statute that governs the equitable division of assets. Maybe I should just mention those. You should have a statement that says, we understand that if we went to a judge, the judge would consider the length of our marriage, our conduct during the marriage. And conduct not being, was it a moral conduct, but rather is it conduct affecting the marital financial estate? That issue comes up often. The age, health of the parties, their station, with a middle class, upper class, lower class, the occupation of each, the amount and sources of income of each, the vocational skills, employability, estate, liabilities, the needs of the parties, and the opportunity for the parties for the future acquisition of capital assets. What did they each contribute to their the acquisition, 
preservation or appreciation of value of their estates in what each has contributed as a homemaker for the marriage. So if there's a statement that the parties know that those are the factors and that they understand that they're waiving them, that'll just strengthen the opportunity for that agreement to be enforced. This is really eye-opening. I don't think a lot of folks are aware that you can do one of these post-marriage, you know, post-nuptials. This has been very interesting. It's also sure. interesting to think you know, that people would enter this agreement in order to preserve a marriage. That yeah. seems like a little bit of a twist, but in reality, that's really, I think, what happens. And you might have a situation, as I said earlier, on a prenuptial agreement, someone may want it because they're concerned about their soon-to-be spouse's spending habits, gambling, maybe a substance issue or the behavioral health issue that might impact their ability to have work or generate assets. Um, you can understand that if one of those things developed during the course of a marriage, then a postnuptial agreement may make sense after a period of counseling or therapy where they're addressing that underlying issue. And you can use this agreement to recommit. And from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense, John. We've been talking with Myrick O'Connell partner and family law and divorce group chair, John Shea, about ways to avoid probate court in the context of divorce and family law. And we've talked about prenuptial agreements. We just talked about postnuptial agreements. John, how can folks contact you with questions or concerns about what we've talked about? Folks can call me at my, at my office. My direct line, which I answer unless I'm on the phone or in court or in a meeting, is 508-860-1560. Or they can reach me through our website, which is Myrick O'Connell, or they can email me at the letter J, Shea, S-H-E-A, at Myrick, M-I-R-I-C-K, O'Connell, O-C-O, nnell.com if they want to email me or they can take a look at me on the our website pretty easy to find great thanks again john howard thank you very much sure on behalf of attorney john shea and the law firm of myrick o'connell i'm howard kaplan thanks for joining us take care and stay safe this podcast is brought to you by the law firm of myrick o'connell it is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest it is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such this podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the massachusetts supreme judicial court 